You're listening to episode 97 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today is the first in a two-part series with country representatives from the Asia Foundation. In this interview, I speak to Sam Chittick, country representative for the Philippines. I really enjoyed this discussion for a few reasons. Firstly, Sam and I discussed the role of the private sector in achieving development in the Philippines and how dialogues are helping to bridge the gap between government, private and NGOs. We then discussed the social impacts of COVID-19 in the Philippines on households that were already experiencing poverty, including the loss of livelihoods and the decision of President Rodrigo Duterte to stop any children going back to school until a vaccine is available. On this note, we discussed the challenges of running an aid program under the Duterte presidency. Lastly, we discussed the decision made by the Australian government to scale back our aid investments in much of Asia, and Sam's view on whether this is in the best interests of the Philippines or not. Now, before I go, there are two upcoming events I want to tell you about. The first is the Power Licklick NGO Forum, which is in two days on Wednesday, the 30th of September. It is a free event for anyone working in or interested in the development sector run by the wonderful team at the Kokoda Track Foundation. It's not too late to sign up. Just visit the link in our show notes. The second is the Oceania Connect Conference hosted by ACFID in partnership with the New Zealand Council for International Development and the Pacific Islands Association of Non-Governmental Organisations. The conference will be held virtually this year from 27 to 30 October. It is one of my favourite events for our sector each year, and I'm honoured to be hosting a very exciting panel this year, which I'll tell you more about in the coming weeks. Again, you can buy your tickets via the link in our show notes. This one is not to be missed. I'd love to hear your take on the discussion. Please visit our social media pages or you can tweet me directly. The links are in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Sam, thanks for speaking with me. To start with, can you tell me about the key focus areas for the Asia Foundation in the Philippines? Yeah, good morning and uh, nice to talk with you. We... Um, the Asia Foundation in the Philippines, the, the basis of it is to try to work on fundamental development challenges for the country. And and we try to do that by partnering with Philippine organizations and, and leaders themselves who are, who are working for positive change. And so what that translates to into programs is we have a uh, focus on peace and stability, um, mostly focused in, in the South, in Mindanao. Uh, we support work on law and human rights, working with both with the courts and also with the formal human rights institutions and with civil society. We work on economic policy reforms and particularly supporting coalitions for change that, that help to bridge the interests of government, civil society and private sector. We work on governance issues, which for us includes work on um, challenges for people with disabilities, um, the future of work, social housing, uh, amongst other things, and including uh, some work on youth leadership for democratic governance. And then lastly, we work on education. And education for us is a mixture of work on governance challenges in the sector, but also on literacy and uh, more recently digital literacy programs. Can you elaborate on that economic policy and economic governance work. You, you mentioned off-air that Graham Teske recently did a review of one of your programs in that area in the Philippines, and I know it's been getting a lot of press. So can you tell me more about that and especially how it bridges the gap between the private sector and government? 
Right. So the book was uh, Thinking and Working Politically in Development, a book covering the work of the Coalitions for Change program in the Philippines. And that's um, available on, on the website for anyone who's interested to read it. It's really targeted at a, the kind of thinking and working politically and the doing development differently crowd in in development sector. Uh, and it's written by my colleague here in the Philippines, Jaime Faustino, and uh, Professor John Seidel from the London School of Economics. So good read. Highly recommended. Um the Coalitions for Change program tries to, as I said, bridge that the interests of different sectors who are working for economic policy change, um, and particularly looking at the interface between uh, where government policy, um, civil society interests, and uh, private sector interests come together. And so the role of the program is really to play a kind of a facilitating and a brokering role. Um, bringing the, the voices to the table, creating space for dialogue, um, so that you can have a more constructive discussion and, uh, and inputs on key policy decisions. And what we end up working on under that program are things like, uh, at the moment, on um, urban mobility challenges. Uh, and we've had some tremendous success, strangely enough, during the COVID period in terms of um, policy changes, making, um, you know, Metro Manila has huge transport and mobility challenges. And so um, easing that for the people who use public transport is a, is a fantastic step forward. It's a really interesting time to be talking about the private sector. And my guess is that in the coming years, we'll see a lot more private sector co-financing in our aid programs. I'm curious, though, how receptive is the private sector in the Philippines to these dialogues? Very receptive, uh, with the caveat that um, it's still uh, the interests are still there, right? And private sector interests still remain. And so finding the intersect of where someone's uh, investment and profit interest will marry together with a good social outcome or a good economic outcome is there's a bit of an art to it. Um, and that's where the particular sort of space that that program, the Coalitions for Change program focuses on. Um, so there is, there is definitely a shift as I think there's been globally amongst uh, leaders in private sector in terms of looking at longer term outcomes, looking beyond the profit line, um, which is a very healthy thing. And it's true also of the Philippine uh, large corporations and, and medium-sized corporations that exist, but it's still a hard slog. I mean, it's not a, not a natural um, kind of fit, I guess, and that's why we think that we can be useful in helping to bridge some of those divides. And how has the Philippines felt the economic impacts of COVID-19 and has it especially impacted on people that you were already targeting programs for? Yeah, it's been massive increase. Uh, massive, sorry. Uh, the the impact of COVID has been enormous. Uh, we've just passed six months lockdown, um, and relative to the rest of the world, it's been quite a quite a stiff, quite a harsh lockdown. Uh, and economically, um, you know, unemployment levels have risen to over seventeen million. Um, it was down, you know, two to three million at the start of the year. Um, some of those numbers have started to come back in recent months. The 17 million was the peak, um, but it's been it, it's hit some sectors uh, enormously hard. Transport, uh, you know, obviously food and entertainment, 
uh, incredibly difficult. Other sectors such as agriculture have not shown a real decrease in, in employment or a significant decrease in, in, in employment, which is great. Um, but most of those that are, you know, people facing and where there's significant people interface, um, travel, transport, tourism is has been a really fast-growing sector here and really important for the economy, and that's obviously dead at the moment. Um, so there's been huge impact on day-to-day uh, -day life. And you know, in, the, in the Philippines, around 20% of the population is, or uh, official statistics uh, suggest around 16% are poor. Um, there's another 20, 25% on top of that who are really, and uh, the global definitions would be defined as poor and are really vulnerable to any small um, slip in their economic situation. You know, a a car crash or somebody in the family getting sick uh, or a natural disaster, those kind of things push people back into poverty very quickly. And this is one of those kind of situations. For the poor in the Philippines, and by that I mean the 40% that I was referring to, it's um, it's really a day-to-day -day income situation. So if you're not able to go out and make money and make your living, then which is the, the situation under the current pandemic and uh, for most people during the, the lockdown, then obviously that has huge impacts on household income and, um, and flow through impacts on health, hunger, all of the associated challenges. Okay, so how have you repurposed or redesigned existing programs in the Philippines to meet that changing need due to COVID-19? So we did a review, all of our teams did a review of every program and we looked at, um, that was really in the first couple of weeks. Um, so in the Philippines, the the lockdown began on March uh, 13, 14. And so at that, even before that time, it was already obvious that there was going to be significant impacts. Uh, what we did was we got every team to look at um, what can continue, uh, what should go on hold and what should be stopped or cancelled. And then the last part of it was what new things can uh, the teams do to help respond, whether that's in education or on the peace and conflict front or on human rights. There was, you know, sort of a series of responses from all the different teams. Okay, so similar to the re-evaluation of priorities that has happened in Australia that, that DFAT ha has undertaken in recent months, would you say that longer-term there will be a realignment of priorities for the Asia Foundation in the Philippines? Yes, in the short term. Um, I would argue probably not in the longer term. Um, I think the country will rebound from this. It's going to take a long, long time. Uh, just the, you know, the economic recovery is going to take a long time. And I think we're going to be dealing with the ripple effects of the pandemic for at least another 18 months or so, um, probably longer. So, the impacts are going to be significant, but the fundamental challenges that we work on, you know, um, peace in the South, uh, law and human rights, the, these economic challenges, the core governance constraints of the country, those things are not going to go away. And so the challenge is to view those things in the short to medium term through the lens of the impact that COVID is having. And in a way, it's like an amplifier, right? It just takes those existing inequities and those existing development challenges and uh, amplifies their impact on society. It doesn't change the fundamental fact that they that they're there and uh, and that there are still good people and uh, great organisations in the Philippines that are working to to address each of those. 
So I know another area of work for the Asia Foundation is education, mainly education governance. And Rodrigo Duterte said recently that children in the Philippines would not go back to school until a vaccine was available. And I mean, we know from from other examples around the world that if children spend more than about six to eight months out of school, it becomes very hard for them to, to ever go back. So how are you addressing that challenge? Right. So school here normally finishes in April and starts up again in June, the public school system. Uh, and so the kids who finished in, in sort of March, April have not been back to school yet. School is scheduled to restart in October and that will be six months of, um, of no schooling. The re-enrollment numbers suggest that uh, most of the kids are re-enrolling, but there's still around two million who have not yet uh, re-enrolled. They've essentially disappeared. That's even before school starts. And there's a whole bunch of associated costs with schooling now, which were not there before in terms of, um, so the, the the current intention of the government is to have school going back as a remote learning exercise. Uh, and for most people, that means the teachers will print off lesson guides at the start of the week. The kids or the parents will pick them up and then they'll do them at home. Um, that's extremely problematic in terms of learning uh, learning outcome. So we run the risk this year of having a really, um, you know, really reduced um, ability to improve those education outcomes for 2020 and 2021. Uh, and the government's still trying to figure that out. As I mentioned, school has not yet started, uh, scheduled to start next month. So we'll see how that goes. It's a little bit of an outlier relative to other Southeast Asian nations uh, in terms of the, you know, the the statement from the president and also from the Secretary of Education that school would not go back until there is a vaccine, because uh, as as you know, you know, that that may be a very long time frame. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm curious to know how challenging is it to work in a country like the Philippines with a government such as the current one, which we you know, a very authoritarian government. How difficult is it to plan aid programs in that context? This COVID period has been strange for all governments around the world. Uh, in the Philippines, what you've what you've seen is a tendency to rely uh, enormously on the central government. We have a presidential system. There's a lot of power invested in the executive. Uh, and in recent years, you know, there's been um, Congress has been, or not just in recent years, but historically, Congress aligns with presidential uh, imperatives, and that's that's the case now. And I think what it's done is amplify that that uh, that central power. What we saw uh, in the early period of COVID was that the responses really needed to be local, and the responses needed to be led by local government. We we set up a thing called. A website called uh, LGUs versus COVID, local government units versus COVID.ph, um, which is really just a portal for sharing information on good practices, what's working well, how do you set up uh, an appropriate uh, testing center that follows the protocols, how do you do a feeding kitchen which follows, you know, which is COVID safe. Because what we were finding was that local governments were getting a lot of instruction from the national level of do this and don't do that, but they were not getting the help on how to respond. Uh, and so that portal as an exchange between local governments and with good examples also um, captures all of the national um, announcements and pronouncements and so on. Uh, that's been really useful and it's provoked a real um, kind of discussion and stimulus across local governments. And you've seen some tremendous responses from different cities, different municipalities, where local leaders are able to 
um, really focus the efforts of the community on responses. And that, to me, is very encouraging. And although there is a tendency at the national level for this kind of, you know, um, direct, very directed um, imperatives, I think the longer-term recovery is going to be driven by local responses. And just coming back to the education point then, is the focus for the Asia Foundation right now on how do we get students back to school when that happens or is it on how do we educate them remotely now? At the moment for the government, it's both. There's a lot of focus going into how to educate them remotely. Um, use of television, radio, uh, printed materials to be handed out across the country. But those things can only do a certain amount in filling the gap um, you know, real education outcomes will be driven when the kids are able to return to school. So that's also got to be part of the part of the focus. Um, and I think what what will happen longer term is that uh, the government will start to allow local school districts to make their own decisions on those returns. Um, you know, if there is a period of time in which a, a certain district has not had COVID cases, then it would make sense to go back to school. But honestly, the way uh, things are panning out at the moment, I think the expectation amongst most of the stakeholders is that there will be no face-to-face schooling for this whole school year. Okay, so to go a bit bigger picture now, in Australia and in, in many countries in the region, the focus is on the economic impacts of COVID-19. And you made the point in March of this year that we really needed to turn our attention to the impacts of COVID-19 on developing countries and on people that were already extremely poor, extremely vulnerable to the impacts of poverty. Can you illustrate that point for me further and explain what does COVID-19 mean for someone that was already living in extreme poverty? You know, prior to COVID, the Philippines had been doing a really good job in terms of poverty. Uh, there was around a million people a year over the last uh, six or seven years who'd been moving out of poverty. That's a huge success. And at the start of this year, with the advent of COVID, you know, a lot of that has gone out the window and most a lot of those successes have been reversed. As I mentioned before, unemployment uh, you know, rose to over 17 million. At the peak, it's still up around 10 million, um, which huge impact on, on, on families. And that, the way that translates for most families is uh, hunger. Uh, in July, there was about 5.2 million families across the country who were reporting periods of hunger. Um, that's about twice the, the norm. Um, that was up from around about 4.2 million families in, in May. So it's been getting worse the last couple of months. Hopefully that will start to ease now that um, now that things are opening up a little and uh, some jobs are returning. But, you know, one of the problems, one of the development challenges in the Philippines has been stunting. Stunting has been a huge problem for, you know, under five kids and it creates lifelong impacts. In 2008, the stunting numbers were around 30% of kids under five. Um, that's improved. It was around 45% uh, about 10 years before that. So it's been gradually coming down. But 30% is still an enormous amount of kids. And you can imagine the impact that it's going to have when uh, one or both parents are unable to, um, you know, to bring in their income. So I would expect that some of those numbers would be would be declining. But at the same time in the Philippines, you have the same situation as the rest of the world, where stock markets have proven relatively resilient. They've rebounded after the initial losses, which is kind of bizarre. Um, so it's not the, you know, those who control the capital or the tech billionaires or others who are suffering. It's those who are living day to day. Um, and particularly in areas of urban poverty in the Philippines. Um, there are a lot of 
flow-on impacts. Water is a commodity in urban areas, and you have to pay for it. So obvious flow-through effects for sanitation and health, and uh, you know, the basic ability to wash. Uh, the rules here state you have to wear a mask and a face shield every time you you go out, and that's you know it's a relatively minor cost for most people, but it's still a cost for people who have to go out. And people are improvising and trying to come up with uh, new ways of doing things. So, the World Bank estimated um, that around 50 million or about 50 million people would be pushed back into poverty around the world, and uh, we're definitely seeing that that's the case in in the Philippines. To finish, then, is there a particular take-home message that you'd like? our listeners to know about the Philippines and, and what's happening there at the moment. I was struck a couple of weeks ago in your interview with uh, with Tim Costello, um, you know, that he was talking about end COVID for all. And I think that that campaign and that advocacy is really, is really powerful. Um, you know, the idea that it's not over for any of us until it's over for all of us. And, you know, Australia as a, you know, as an island continent has done a done a good job and is currently now on a great track in terms of COVID outcomes. But there are a lot of other parts of the world where um, the idea of eradicating this or, you know, containing it to, to zero is just not feasible. It's not possible. And so the ripple effects of that are going to run for a long time. I think Australia's commitment to help on um, the vaccine vaccine financing for some of the neighbouring countries in the Pacific and Asia is a fantastic initiative. Um, not only makes sense in development outcomes and health outcomes, but also makes sense in in terms of uh, you know Australia's broader relationships and uh, and and friendships. So I think there's a lot that Australia can do, but it starts with Australia realising that this problem is not just about, you know, closing the borders and controlling our internal issues and concerns. It's also about looking beyond those borders and working out how we can help those who are most in need uh, around our neighbouring regions. But Australian aid to the Philippines has fallen a lot in, in recent years, or like many countries in Asia. Does that bother you as an Australian? Yes and no. Uh, yes, it bothers me because I think we could be doing more. And I think Australian aid is one of the most uh, creative and innovative sources of funding that the Philippines has in terms of bilateral grant aid. And I think Australia has a great track record of using that uh, in ways to, to help push you know, positive boundaries, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it is small and it's getting smaller. Um, and if you look at it, you know, relative to all of the other uh, budget choices that we make, it's a tiny, tiny drop in the ocean. Um, at the same time, you know, the Philippines is now a lower middle income country. And it, as I mentioned earlier, it's been, it's had tremendous success over the last decade or so in terms of um, rising growth and people moving out of poverty. And that is the longer term trajectory for the country. Um, it is... Ultimately, you know, with the COVID impacts and everything, it will set it back a few years. But it's on it's on a good track um, in terms of longer term competitiveness and and growth, and that's a good thing. And that will naturally mean that aid to the Philippines will will decline. But there are still these pockets of challenges which are proving difficult to resolve. I mentioned the stunting earlier. Conflict in the south still continues. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, two more suicide bombings in in Hollow and Sulu. Those kind of challenges require or uh, are better solved if there is a collective um, effort amongst uh, different countries to assist and work together with the Philippine government. That was episode 97 of Goodwill Hunters, brought to you by Goodwill Media. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>